you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll be turning to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Last week we began to look at uh, the woes to the Pharisees as Jesus was turning the tables uh, with his words. He had allowed them to accuse him for three years now, and now it was his turn to accuse. And he didn't only accuse them for the things that were the on the outside, but more terrifyingly, he exposed what was in their hearts and accused them of their, their deepest sins. And as we looked last week, because these leaders had no fear of God, uh, they practiced uh, the wickedness that they did as though God did not see them and would not judge them. So this morning, we're looking at uh, the end of these these woes that he's bringing to the scribes and the Pharisees. And so if you found your way there in Matthew chapter 23, we're going to start in verses 29 this morning. Uh, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You may be seated. So the title of the message this morning is The Judge's Ruling on Jerusalem's Rulers. The judge's ruling on Jerusalem's rulers. Jesus has now accused the Pharisees of these various sins, and now he is pronouncing judgment on them. And so we want to unpack this a little bit so that we can see uh, in the context as this is leading up to the cross. Uh, if you weren't here uh, last week, I would encourage you to go back and uh, watch that message and the text that we looked at earlier in chapter 23. Uh, if you've ever wondered why uh, the Jews wanted to kill a very nice and loving man like Jesus, read the rest of chapter 23, and it will become clear why he was hated so much by these leaders and why they wanted him dead. So this is the judges ruling on Jerusalem's rulers. The first thing I want you to see in the text here is the prosecution. Look at verses 29 through 33 again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you were the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the, of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? couple things we want to see here. The first thing we want to see in the, in the prosecution is the Pharisees' plea. This is the, the plea that they're giving to God, that if we were in the day of our fathers, that we wouldn't have done the same things that they did. There's an irony here that Jesus is pointing out, which is that 
while they say they would not have killed the prophets of old, they are about to kill the prophet that's right in front of them. And this is why he's calling them hypocrites, because they say that they're better than their fathers that murdered all the men of God in the Old Testament, and yet they're about to do exactly the same thing. And in fact, they're about to do it to an even greater degree because they are killing the final prophet, the Messiah himself, the Son of God. There is no one greater that has ever been sent to Israel than the Messiah, and they know this, and yet they're still going to kill, kill him. And as we've pointed out in the text, they know that he's the Messiah at this point. He's been very clear about it. His works have proven it. His uh, teaching has proven it. And so they know that they are going to kill the Messiah. And they know in their minds, again, because they have no fear of God, they think that God cannot see them or that he does not know their thoughts. And yet Jesus is exposing here the irony that they say that they wouldn't kill the prophets. And yet they're about to kill the greatest prophet that has ever been sent to Israel. And so their plea is hypocritical. In fact, Jesus goes so far in this text as to point out that Jewish history can actually be measured by the murder of the men of God. That when Jesus looks at the history of Israel, it goes from one prophet or one righteous man sent to Israel to another in their death. And when you look through the Old Testament, you can see where he gets that from. How terrifying would it be as the people of God for him to say that the way that he measures your history is in uh, the deaths of those that he sent to you. It would be a very terrifying thing to hear uh, as the Pharisees hear. And also, uh, they are testifying against themselves, as, as Jesus points out here, because they were typical sons. Well, we talked last week about typology, how you have types of Christ in the Old Testament. You have pictures of him. In the same way, children are pictures of their parents. Uh, we are typical sons and daughters of our parents. And so these were typical sons of the previous generation of Jewish leadership. So while they may not be physically descended from the Old Testament rulers of Israel, Jesus is saying spiritually, you're exactly like they are uh, in, in the way that you respond to God in, in your hatred for God, uh, in, in your hatred for uh, the men that he sends. You are typical sons imitating your fathers. We say that we're different from our parents, but we often end up becoming more like them than we realize, don't we? Especially as you get older or when you get married or especially when you have kids, you begin to think to yourself, uh, some, some of you are newly married and getting ready to have kids or you're seriously thinking about marriage or, or about having children. Maybe, maybe you already have children, but you have the newborn and you have those conversations as a couple of uh, here's some things that my parents did with me that I think were really good when I was growing up. I think, I think they got some things right. And here's some things that they definitely didn't get right that I would want to do better. And so we decide in our minds, uh, I'm going to do better than my mom and dad did as a parent. I'm going to do it right this time. And I won't make the same mistakes that they did. And of course, that's what we want. I hope that my children don't repeat my mistakes. I hope that they take the good that I do with them and ignore the bad and that they do improve. We would hope that two or three generations from now, uh, the grandchildren of people in this room would be uh, the godliest generation that's ever existed in this church. That's what we would hope that we're passing on. But if we're honest, we often uh, catch ourselves doing those same things that we said that we wouldn't do. And it's interesting whether that's nature or nurture is up for debate, but we often catch ourselves uh, and uh, husbands and wives may have said this to each other, you're just like your dad or you're just like your mom. And 
uh, sometimes they don't mean that in a nice way. And, and, and that's just the way that our society works. And yet this is exactly what the Pharisees are, are saying here. Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be like our parents. Our, you know, our parents rejected the prophets. Our parents didn't obey the law. Our parents didn't follow God. They turned to idols. But we would never do that. And Jesus is saying, you're exactly like your parents. And they said the same thing, and yet they did the same, uh, the same things that Jesus was accusing them of there. So we see the Pharisees' plea in the first part of the prosecution. And the second thing that we see in the prosecution is the Messiah's pronouncement in the latter half of that. So it's interesting, this, this phrase that Jesus uses here, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Now some of your translations, if you have ESV, you'll actually see an exclamation point on the end of that. This is because it's, it's an emphatic statement. Fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. This tells us a couple things about God that we need to see here. First is, there's a measure or a limitation to wickedness and violence in God's eyes. Aren't you glad? Aren't you, gl- aren't you glad that all of the, the violence and the wickedness that we see in the world has a limitation put on it? As bad as it seems, as depraved as we are, we still are not radically depraved. We still don't do every wicked thing that we conceive of doing. And praise God for that, because this world probably would not even exist at this point if everyone was wicked to the fullest capacity that they could be. And we believe people are born into sin, and so we all are inclined towards wickedness, and yet even wicked people have a conscience that limits them from doing certain things. And God, in his sovereignty, places limits on wickedness. So when he says the measure of the guilt of your fathers, he's saying that there is a guilt on the people of Israel, that the people of Israel, there's a a limit to the amount of guilt that God is going to let them accumulate for themselves before he judges them. In other words, there's a limit. God has set in a particular place the limitation on the amount of guilt that they are able to incur. And that's a good thing for us because otherwise we would just constantly heap condemnation and judgment on ourselves with no restraint whatsoever. And so God even restrains the wicked to the extent that they're able to be wicked. This statement here, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, is actually a challenge. It's a challenge that he's giving to them. He's saying, finish what your father started. You've been persecuting my people from the beginning. Finish what you started. And how are they going to finish that? Again, by the Messiah. Remember the parable of the, of the, vine, of the vineyard where there's the vine owner, uh, the vineyard owner, and the messengers are sent. They keep killing the messengers. And finally, he says, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. And they killed his son because they wanted to take his inheritance. And then he came in and judged all of them. This, that parable is what's being fulfilled right, right in front of us here in the text. Jesus is saying, there, there's a measure, there's a limit of guilt. And when you kill the Son of God, when you kill God's only begotten Son that he loves, you messed up. The cup is full. That's, that's the limit. You can't do anything worse than that. And that's what they're about to do. And so he's challenging them. You say that you're not going to be like your fathers, but go ahead and finish what they started. This generation, you are going to be the ones that's going to receive the punishment for everything that your fathers did. So once this measure of guilt is filled up at the cross for them, the wrath of God's judgment is, again, as we've pointed out several times, is going to be poured out on the leadership of Israel in AD 70. When we look back at AD 70 at the destruction of the temple, that is when God judges Israel as a nation because he completely breaks down and destroys their entire system of worship 
the temple, the sacrifices, the means of atonement, the priesthood, everything is crushed. So when you look at modern Judaism today, you have some of the traditions, you have some of the scriptural information, but being able to function as a religious system of a chosen people of God who have a way of being saved, a way of being atoned for, the atonement was removed from the Jewish people in AD 70. So now there is only one high priest, there's only one Lamb of God that has been sacrificed, and there's only one means of atonement, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that's for every Jew, Gentile, everybody. Uh, the only way to get into heaven is through Jesus Christ now. God has shut the door to every other way, and He's Jesus is now pronouncing this judgment on them. This generation, you will be the ones to receive the culmination of God's judgment, that he is cutting off atonement from Israel. That because you have rejected the Messiah, you have now actually rejected the fulfillment of everything that you stood for. Think about how tragic that is. Thousands of years of sacrifices. Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. How were their sins ever forgiven? It was all through Jesus anyways, even in the Old Testament. He is the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. The only way they received grace was through Jesus. And now here he is, grace himself in front of them, and they've rejected him. They've cut themselves off from the grace of God. It's a tragic thing. Notice he says, uh, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Let's, let's talk about that. I mentioned it last week too. Uh, the word that he uses here uh, in the original language is for like these small snakes. They looked kind of like twigs. And so when they're gathering up grains and things for the harvest, and uh, as you've probably heard before, you know, they would toss it up in the air and that would uh, blow the chaff away and it would just have the grains left. Then they would sweep all that chaff into a fire and burn it up to get it out of the way and just leave the good grain that's there. Well, a lot of times these little snakes that look like twigs would get caught up in the chaff that they were going to burn up. And so they would push all that into the fire and then you would see these little snakes running away from the fire, trying to get out of the fire. Uh, for instance, it's the same word that's used if you look in the book of Acts where Paul was bitten by a serpent on the island of uh, Malta and cast it into the fire. It's the same kind of snake that it's talking about there, these small snakes. And Jesus is saying, these are, this is how you guys are. You're hiding in. You're hiding in among all the wheat. You're hiding in the people of God. And one day God is going to come and judge and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, and he's going to cast that chaff into the fire. And do you really think that you're going to be able to outrun the fire of God whenever he judges you? This is what he's telling them. You think that God can't see you? You think that God doesn't know your heart, that he can't judge you? Do you really think you're going to be able to escape his wrath on the last day? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is you can't. The other thing that's interesting is the word here that he's using for, for hell is, is literally Gehenna which you may have heard before. So Gehenna was a valley nearby where they burned trash. So all of their trash and uh, waste and things like that, they would take out there and burn. And so it was perpetually burning all the time. So you could just look over the hill and you would always see smoke rising from the hill. It was this fire that lasted forever. This is the word that Jesus uses to describe hell, that it's like Gehenna. It's a, it's a fire that never ends, that in the same way when God separates the wheat from the chaff and the chaff is burned, that God will separate the righteous from the ungodly and the ungodly will be cast into a lake of fire that does not end. But it's interesting, if you go back to the history of how did this become the trash dump to begin with, you have to look at the Old Testament. That's the site where the worship of Molech occurred, where uh, Israel worshipped Molech, a false god, and sacrificed their children there. And they would sacrifice their, their children uh, in the fire, and 
which is something uh, that God is very explicit about that he hates. And so isn't it interesting, I just want to point out culturally that Jesus is saying here that if we want to understand uh, what God's judgment is like or what he hates, and if we want to understand the punishment of hell, the closest thing that we would have in our community is Planned Parenthood in Asheville. Is, is the closest thing that we would have. Uh, if you were to ask yourself, where is a place that God hates that he would pour out his wrath and his punishment on, that, that's a practical example for you. Uh, because this is where that occurred. And when Josiah uh, came to reign Israel at age nine and recovered the law for the people of God, he declared that to be a trash dump. He said, there will never be any worship in there. It's an unholy place. We will not have anything to do with it. We completely reject it. It's only good for burning trash. And Josiah pronounced that, and even up until Jesus' day, that's when that was still happening. And so that gives you a, a mental picture of something that God hates, uh, which is abortion, uh, that he hates very much. To illustrate this, this point here of the, the hypocrisy in these things, there, there's a book. It's a good book. It's called Dangerous Calling. Some of you may have read it. It's by Paul David Tripp, and it's a book uh, for pastors and church leaders, and it talks about the dangers of entering the ministry and how many men end up disqualifying themselves from ministry. They, they send their way out or uh, they're not able to handle the stress or the challenges. Uh, you may not know, like statistically, the rate of depression and suicide is actually higher for pastors um, than the average person because of uh, the stress and the, the burdens and things that they have to carry. And so this book addresses some of that and how can men be healthier in the ministry in doing that. There's two versions of the book. I have the original version, and the reason why they had to change it was because of the endorsements. So if you look at the endorsements, most of you are readers in here, so you look at the book, you have famous people that say, I really like this book, or this is what I appreciated about it. The first edition of Dangerous Calling that came out had endorsements by Talian Shavidian, who was a pastor of Corridge Presbyterian Church, until he discovered that him and his wife were both having affairs with church members, and he was excommunicated and removed from that denomination and then a few months later picked up by another church who six months later fired him for doing the exact same thing again, and now he just has Twitter. Um, another endorsement on there was James McDonald, who was very famous, had a, a large radio ministry, who was excommunicated from his church for basically being uh, violent and aggressive towards his church staff and uh, has been accused of actually hiring an assassin to kill his son-in-law. Um, that was one of the other endorsements on the book. Uh, and uh, I believe Mark Driscoll uh, endorsed it also. And so it was a book about how it's dangerous to be a pastor because you can fall into sin, endorsed by pastors that fall into sin, and actually prove that the book is true. I think they should have left the endorsements on there because I think it was actually uh, a selling point. Of if you don't want to be like these guys, you should probably read this book. So they have, so they have a, a new uh, version of it that has guys who haven't discredited themselves yet. Uh, this is one of the reasons why when we preach, we like to quote dead guys, because it's harder for them to mess up their ministry uh, if they're already with the Lord. But th that's the way that these Pharisees were, is they had this appearance of being religious leaders, and yet Jesus is continually exposing that they're frauds and that they're going to be judged by God. And not only that, he's not just saying that, that they're responsible for leading people astray and that they're going to lose some rewards in heaven. Jesus is saying they will go to hell when they die. He's saying you, you in particular actually can't escape the sentence of hell. Now, I can sit here and say this morning, if you're not trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, you will go to hell when you die. I can say that, but I don't know who is and his isn't. Jesus knows. 
So if Jesus tells you you're going to hell, you are for sure 100% going to hell because he actually knows what's in your heart. He knows what your destiny is. And so, again, he's saying this language here, and instead of them repenting, can you imagine the Son of God telling this to you? And, and if you're a believer here, you would think my response would just be, Lord, have mercy. You know, I'm sorry for everything. Like, like they did in Acts, in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches to them and tells them, you crucified the Messiah. It says, what must, what must we do to be saved? I don't need to hear anything else. I know I'm guilty. What must I do to be saved? And yet their response is to continue in persecuting the Son of God. How, how hardened do you have to be? How, how little fear of God do you have to have? for the Messiah to tell you that you're going to hell and still not believe it, still think that you've got a chance. It's incredible. So we must be concerned with the irony of sin in our own lives. We must remember that it's only by grace alone that we're not more sinful than we are. Sometimes we can, we can uh, look at someone else and say, well, that, that person, you know, I would never do something like that. Yes, you would. If it wasn't for the grace of God, yes, you would. And so we can look at somebody that, that commits some kind of heinous crime or something else, and we think that we're better than that person. But if it wasn't for God's grace, it, it wouldn't matter. We, the, the, the nicest person in the world deserves hell. And, and if you look at the measurement of God's standard of holiness, again, look, look, at, look at this. The outward presentation of holiness of the Pharisees here, these were the godliest men that you can imagine in all of history. And Jesus is saying, you, are, you will definitely go to hell. Jesus is saying that to them. And so why, we, don't, we aren't able to keep the law. I don't know about you guys. I can't keep all the Ten Commandments all the time. I can't, I can't uh, obey all of this kind of stuff. And so what hope is there for me? Well, in and of myself, there is no hope whatsoever uh, of us being able to earn God's grace or have forgiveness. And instead of them realizing this, they just continued on in their works. And Jesus is saying, your works are going to burn up. They're not good enough. But thanks be to God, uh, we have someone who's worked on our behalf in Jesus Christ. So we see the prosecution. The second thing that I, that I want you to see in the text here is the persecution. Look at verses 34 and 35 there. Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So in this, in this persecution, there's a couple of things here that I want us to see. First is that the prophets were sent. You notice that in the beginning? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets. How, how was Jesus sending them prophets in the Old Testament? Well, he's claiming here that he, that he has authority in God's decree and in human salvation. He, he's, he's saying, you know the plan that God has for the whole universe, that the plan that he has even for our own lives today, that, that's, that Jesus was the one that did that. He's saying, I'm the one that's planned all of this out. I, I decided all of it. So how do we explain that? Well, we're going to do a little theology lesson this morning. So, uh, you know, if you got the coffee, take a, a big sip or whatever, whatever you got to do. But... But I think it's important when we go through text and it touches on theological topics to, to kind of unpack those because uh, I don't have an opportunity to do a theology, a systematic theology class with all of you on a regular basis. But here in the text, we need to understand what, what does this mean when Jesus is saying here that he was the one that sent the prophets in the Old Testament before he was born? What does that mean? A couple things. 
couple ideas that I want to give you this morning that uh, you're, we're having lunch today, so it's great. So you can ask me questions. We can talk about it more afterwards. But uh, a couple things. The first is what's called the economic trinity. So when we talk about the trinity, uh, there's a thing called the economic trinity. And what, what that means is, is how do the persons of the trinity work together when they do something? So we know, according to scripture, that there is only one God, and that God is eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they are co-equal with one another. So there is not one that is greater than the other one. So the question is, when God does something, like for instance, he creates, or when he sends a prophet, because we know that they are all of the same substance, they are all God, that means they're never in disagreement with each other. The, the Son never disagrees with the Spirit, the Spirit never disagrees with the Father, the, not, the Father never disagrees with the Son or the Spirit. They're always unified, they're on the same page. Jesus' will is aligned with his Father's will. Remember he says, I only do what my father tells me to do. Uh, I and the father are one. I have the will of my father. He talks about these kind of things. So they're unified in that way. So when we think about the pre-incarnate Jesus, as we talked about before, uh, Jesus has always existed as the divine word. But there was a time in history where he took on human flesh, human nature. But we know that in the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 1, Jesus is there. John tells us that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's how we understand that. So how was Jesus able to send the, the prophets? So in the economic trinity, what we see is, is we see the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how do they actually function together in order to do things? Which leads us to the second term that I want to give you this morning, which is called the Trinitarian mode of creation, um, which is something, this, this is something that's blessed me personally. I hope, I hope it will be a blessing and encouragement to you. The Trinitarian mode of creation. So in the beginning, uh, was God, and God created everything, but the scripture also tells us that everything that was made was made by Jesus. So who made everything in the beginning? Was it the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit? The answer is all three. Uh, they all three made it. There was one God that made everything. So then the question is, how did he do it? And that's what we call the Trinitarian mode of creation. So if you think about the way that they function, there's only one person of the Trinity that has a human body now, that's Jesus. He did not before he was born, but he does now, even today, he still does. When he comes back, he's coming back in a human body. Um, that's how we'll see him. So we know that they're different in their personhood, even though they're the same in their substance. So think about whenever uh, you want to do something. When God created the world, how did he create the world? He spoke, right? He spoke everything into existence. Think about when you speak. There's three things that have to happen whenever you speak something. You have to have a thought. There has to be an idea of what, what is it that you're going to say. You have to decide what you're going to say. You have to use your mouth in, in order to proclaim whatever that word is that you have in your mind. And the means by which the sound comes out of your mouth is, is by air passing across your vocal cords. That's the way that that happens. So when we think about the Father, we understand that the Father, uh, everything is his plan. He, he, that, that is his, his role. He is... In charge, he's sovereign, he knows everything, he's planned everything, he's decreed everything. When we think about the spirit, the word for spirit comes from the word uh, pneumo in Greek or ruach in uh, Hebrew, which is wind. It's, it's, like, it's like the sound of wind moving. And John 3, Jesus talks about the spirit is like the wind, right? He, you see what he's doing, but you don't necessarily see him working. When we think about the son, the only one who now has a human body, who, who has a physical mouth that is able to speak. So how does that work together? The Father conceived everything in his mind. He decided it all ahead of time. 
the Son speaks everything into existence through his mouth, and he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when it says the Spirit is hovering over the waters, how is it that God speaks? How do we see the Trinity working? Even in Genesis chapter 1, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together differently. It's what we call the economic trinity. So they are equal. One of those is not more important than the other. All three of them are necessary in order for it to, to work, but they're different in function. You also notice that this is also the reason why we believe that God made men and women differently, because there's an economy within the family, too, within marriage, where you have people who are equal in marriage and yet different and distinct in their functions. And so it points to the nature of God. So going back to our text, how was it that Jesus was able to send the prophets? Because he was there, he's been there since the beginning. Everything that was made through him, he made the prophets. He made the Pharisees. That's how he knew what was in their hearts. They belong to him. He knows everything. So we see that the prophets were sent by Jesus. The next thing we see is that the persecution was sequential. So look at this persecution that they have. It says it was from city to city and from Genesis to Second Chronicles. So you may wonder... Why is it that he says all the guilt is on you from Abel all the way to Zechariah? Well, the reason why is in, in the Hebrew canon for Jews, the arrangement of books in the Old Testament is actually different than it is for us. So the last uh, book in our New Testament canon is Malachi. The last book in the Hebrew canon is Second Chronicles, which is where the story of uh, Zechariah is recorded. And so Jesus is pointing out to them that basically from the beginning in Genesis all the way to the end of the canon, all the righteous people that, that were killed, that all the prophets and those that were sent to you, it was your fault. And it was your ancestors' fault. And that, that the guilt of all that righteous blood that was, getting, that, that was uh, going to be uh, paid for is now falling on you, on this generation. In other words, there, I've, been, I've been patient. And I've been giving you opportunities to receive the prophets. And I've even sent my son to you. And once you kill my son, that, the line is drawn. The, the door is closed. You are, now, you are now cut off, and now you will receive the punishment of the guilt of all of those people. In other words, God has not punished Israel yet at this time for killing the prophets yet. He hasn't punished them yet. He's going to wait until they punish Jesus, and then the wrath of all of it is going to be poured out on Israel. And again, we, we would argue that he does that in AD 70 when he completely destroys the temple. Jesus said there will not be one stone laying on top of another. It's all wiped out. And so just, just uh, for those of you who may have studied ahead of time, I know some of you read ahead since we go verse by verse. You may have read this, and I just want to explain it really quick. You might notice uh, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is what Jesus says. Well, if you go and read that story in Second Chronicles, it doesn't say that Berechiah is Zechariah's son. So why would Jesus say it that way? There's a couple, of, a couple of different theories of why Jesus specifically said that, but the most common one is that uh, if you look at the genealogy, Berechiah was actually Zechariah's grandfather. And so a, a lot of times uh, in Scripture or in, in this Jewish culture, when they talk about family relations, for instance, brother, sister, mother, uh, those are, are more uh, uh, terms of endearment or, or a sign of their direct relationship as opposed to direct genetic genealogy. So the way that we think about things, like you wouldn't call your grandfather your father because in Western society, uh, we, we are very particular about we need to say things the right way. In Jewish society, say you had a very strong relationship with your grandfather, it would be totally fine for you to say he's my father because that's that kind of relationship that you have. So, it, so they don't use the relational language 
uh, in terms of uh, strict uh, definitions, for instance, like in-laws or cousins or things like that, they might just say, well, my mother-in-law is my mom. Even though technically she's not your mother by blood relation, as far as your relationship, you just consider her to be your mom. And, and so the easiest way to explain this is, is why did Jesus refer to Zechariah as the son of Berechiah? He's essentially saying he's a descendant of Berechiah, or that Berechiah may have been his grandfather, but that they had a very close relationship. And he's saying that they murdered him between the temple and the altar. As he was a righteous man offering his sacrifice to God, they murdered him. And Jesus is saying, you're guilty for all of it. The spirit of per persecution that Jesus experienced still exists in churches today. There are many pastors this morning, even in our county, who are straining against wicked people in the church who conspire, gossip, slander, and divide. I have, I have friends that I talk to every week, and the question is, uh, did you get fired this week? That, that, that's a question that happens in Haywood County. So I want to encourage you, church, if you see or hear this going on, you need to shut it down. We need to stand up for any local pastor or church leader who's being faithful to the word of God. If you're out in the community and you hear people gossiping about a church or about a pastor or somebody wants to tell you a story or you see that they're trying to stir up strife, as a brother and sister in Christ, you need to rebuke that person. You need to tell them that they're going to be judged by God for trying to tear down his church and that they need to stop attacking their pastors and working against their pastors. And that happens in this county. And some of you may have heard that or you may have been in those circles where that happens. Even with our church, we get conversations of, well, I heard in the community that such and such happened. Okay, did you rebuke that person for being a gossip instead of coming and talking to one of our pastors about it? They don't like hearing that. But, but that, that's how it's supposed to be addressed. Is we need more gospel churches in Haywood County, not less. And so if there's a man that's faithfully preaching God's word, we as a church, even if it's not our church, we need to stand behind that brother and we need, to, we need to be praying for him to have victory in his church, to preach the word of God freely and without opposition from within his own church. And that does happen in this county. And we need, as a church, to stand up against that and say we are for every church that stands on the word of God and preaches the word of God. So we see the prosecution and the persecution. And then finally, we see the proximity. Look at the proximity there in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is an important sentence. And as we move into uh, chapter 24, Chris, is, you're going to hear this generation come up a lot. Jesus is going to start using the same word, this word genea, which when Jesus uses this word, uh, it specifically means people living within a specific time period. So when he says generation, he's not saying a generation he's saying this generation in other words the people who are alive now are going to experience what I'm talking about again this is somewhere around somewhere between uh, the year 30 and the year 35 AD that this conversation is happening when you look at the year 70 when you have the Jewish revolt and then the destruction of the temple this correlates with that that there are people that Jesus was preaching to there were people in the temple that day as he's preaching this in the temple during Passover, that would have seen the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and would have recognized uh, Jesus really was the Messiah because he prophesied that judgment was going to come on Israel and now Israel has been destroyed. Um, so the proximity of the judgment is severe. 
it's severe again. He's not just even judging them for Jesus. He's saying, I'm holding on your account. Every righteous person that Israel killed is on your account for you as the Jewish leaders in this day. You're going to have to suffer the judgment for it. You're going to have to suffer the punishment for it. So, so let's let's just ask the question then. You, you may be wondering, what, what about the average Jewish person in this context? What, what, what if I'm somebody in, in, in this year, and I'm a Jewish person, and I am being faithful. I do believe the scriptures. I am uh, following Jesus. I'm going to the temple and offering my sacrifices. Are, is Jesus saying that, that this judgment is going to come on me as a faithful Jewish person that actually does uh, believe what the Lord is saying? Is, is that what he's saying here? The answer is no, and the reason why is because of another uh, theological word that I want to give you this morning, which is federal headship, federal headship. And I'm going to read to you about it in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. This is what Paul says. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is Paul talking about there? It's called federal headship. It's this idea that there are people throughout history that are appointed as representatives of a people group. So the easiest way to explain this, if you've grown up in church or you're familiar with the Bible, is Adam. Adam was the federal head of all mankind. God appointed him as the representative for all humans and said, do not eat from this tree. And when Adam sinned, Paul's making clear here that that one act of sin condemned all of mankind because he was the representative for all of mankind. And so we today, even though we didn't eat that fruit, received the same condemnation because our father Adam was the federal head of, of mankind. And yet the Bible says the good news is that there's a second Adam or a last Adam, as Paul describes it. And that in the same way that through one act, Adam was able to, to place guilt on all of mankind, that through one act, Jesus is able to justify a group of people, his people the sheep of his pasture. And so Jesus is able to justify everyone who comes to him because of the one act of the cross where he took God's punishment on us. That's the good news. So how does federal headship apply to our text here? When it says these things, this judgment for killing the righteous is going to come upon this generation, he's saying you, 
the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel are the federal heads of Israel. You represent the people of Israel. And so you are going to receive the judgment for the punishment of Israel. So does the individual Jewish person that's trusting in Jesus as Messiah, that's being obedient to what God has said, is that person being punished? No, but Israel as a people is being punished, as a nation is being punished, because their representatives uh, brought judgment on all of them. Now, federal headship still exists today. For one, like I said, if you're in Christ today, Jesus is your federal head. He is your representative before God. Paul says that he's an advocate before the Father that we have that is representing us. And thankfully, he's a very good representative. He's actually able to acquit you of all of your guilt, which is the good news. We see other things in culture, too. For instance, the husband is the federal head of the home, according to Scripture. He bears responsibility uh, for, for his family. Um, teachers in the church endure a stricter judgment. Pastors bear responsibility for their churches. If I teach errors to you, I have to give an account to God for that. And the scripture says that there's a stricter judgment for me than there is for you because I'm up here and you're down there. It doesn't mean I'm better than you, but it means I have responsibility with what I say with my mouth to make sure that it's in agreement with the word of God. To me, that's a terrifying thing when I hear guys get up in a pulpit and just tell a bunch of jokes and talk about grandma's apple pie or something or, or how, to, how, to be, you know, how to have a, a great Christmas package wrapping or something like that. And they get up there and do that. And it's like, that, this is what you're going to bring before God? When he says, what did you do with these people that sat under your teaching? That you taught them how to wrap Christmas presents and make apple pie? That's, that's the best that you can do. That's a terrifying thing to think about. Parents bear responsibility for your children. This is one of the reasons why when you, when you look at the qualifications for an elder in Scripture, the home qualifies a man for the church. Uh, you, I, I don't know how many pastors I've seen that are excellent speakers that have horrible marriages or no marriages or their kids are just totally uh, uh, enemies of God and they have no discipline in their household, but he can preach really good or he can sing really good. And yet the scripture says it's exactly the opposite, that if you're not examining a man's home life, the way that he rules his family qualifies him to rule the church. It says, how can a man rule God's church if he can't rule his own household? And so there's responsibility there. Husbands, bear responsibility for your wives. You're going to have to give an, an account, men, to the spiritual growth of your wife. You're going to have to stand before the Lord, and he's going to say, I, get, I gave you this helper, and I gave you my word. Have you been a good steward? Have you taken care of her? Have you, how have you treated my daughter? And you better have a good answer for that. Because if you think an earthly father would be upset with the way you mistreated your daughter, how much more would your heavenly father be upset to see what we've done with his daughters, man. What responsibilities do you have today? Can you say with a clear conscience that you're being obedient with God's given you? If not, don't despair. You may hear this and think, wow, I think about myself. There's lots of areas in my marriage and my parenting and even here at the church, there's lots of areas that I need to grow in, that I need to improve in. But we don't have to despair because Christ has perfectly obeyed on your behalf. Just as, just as we read in, in, in Romans there, but where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. And so should we continue on sinning so that grace might abound? God forbid, Paul says. And yet, the good news this morning is, hey, if your marriage isn't perfect, if your parenting isn't perfect, if you're not honoring God at your job or, or, or in the church or whatever it is, there's grace for you today uh, and, and forgiveness uh, from the Lord. And so, so then what do you do? 
what do you do? You confess your sin to God. You're honest with him. Lord, I, I know I failed in this area. I'm not going to hide from you. I'm not going to be like them. I'm not going to pretend that you can't see me. I know that you see me. You're going to turn away in repentance, which means you're actually going to make a change. So it's one thing to sit here and say, I feel kind of convicted that, that I'm not leaving my wife or my kids the same way. But the question is, what are you going to actually do to make something different? What decision are you going to make in the next few minutes? You're going to say, this week, I'm going to do something different that's going to result in me being more obedient to God. You have to make a concrete decision. It can't just be feelings that you have. So you turn away in, rep in repentance and obey him. And then what do you do? You trust that his grace is sufficient for you. Lord, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to strive to do that. But my, but my hope is not in my obedience. So I'm not putting my hope there. I will put my effort there, but I'm not putting my hope there. I'm not trusting in my works or my goodness to save me. So in conclusion, to look at all of these things, I, I want to read a portion of Romans 8 to you uh, for your encouragement. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you this morning that we cannot be separated from your love. Lord, we know that if it was up to us, we would be very far from you today. Despite what we look like on the outside, despite the, the good things that we do or what other people are able to see, Lord, we know the truth. We know that in our hearts, Lord, we are tempted and we often fail in temptations that, Lord, if, if fulfilling our responsibilities of, of leadership in the different areas you've given us and and representing others, if, if that was in our strength, Lord, we would surely fail every time. And yet, yet Lord, we're so thankful that in your, in your goodness and your mercy that you just didn't leave us there. You didn't leave us in our own works and our own sin and our own filthy rags of righteousness. But you gave us a way out. You made a way when there was no way, Lord. If it were not for Jesus, if it were not for him coming to this earth as a man, living a sinless life and dying on behalf of our sins, Lord, we would have no hope. No hope of forgiveness, no hope of resurrection, no hope of ever being with you. Lord, if it were not for your mercy in giving us your word this morning, we wouldn't even know who you are. We wouldn't even be able to know any of these things, Lord. And so while we feel the conviction of failing you, Lord, in, in our hearts we don't, we don't want to do that. We don't desire those things. At the same time, we're grateful this morning because of your great life. So we thank you in Jesus' name.